This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Does anybody um, use the internet? <laughs> it's lucky. Um, it's where all the information comes from. <laughs> Uh, and there's a, there's a video that's pretty recent, I think. Um, I never look for news, but I have this web browser that tells me it regardless. Um, and uh, did anybody see the, the video on Twitter of Pope Francis? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it great? So, there, so Pope Francis was in the Vatican on like New Year's. And he's, uh, and he's shaking all these people's hands. And usually, it, 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 he mostly went for the children. That sounded weird, <laughs> given given the illustrious history of that organization. <laughs> but but, um, but he was shaking the hands of like babies and stuff. It was whole, very very wholesome. I think he's a very wholesome man. Um, and uh, and then there was a lady there that he almost walked past, and she was not having Pope Francis. She was not. She didn't come down to you know, the Vatican to get walked, to get ignored by Pope Francis. So she reached out and grabbed his hand and jerked his hand towards her. And you could see him kind of go, you know, and he went, and he slapped her hand away. And he walked away looking like, like pissed, you know. And then the, the headline was, Pope Francis apologizes for for slapping ladies' hand or something like that, and I'm like, no, that all looked right to me, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, and then I thought, and then I made the the terrible mistake, which I strongly discourage if you ever use the internet, of reading comments, you know. Um, and then I'm like, okay, everybody's gonna think this is hilarious and awesome, right? And there's all of these people like. Jesus wouldn't have done that, or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, have you all read the Bible? Jesus was a brat, you know? He, like, there was a fig tree that didn't have any figs, and he, like, cursed it. You know, he's like, you fig without any fig tree, you know, like, um, it, you fig tree without figs. So I think, you know, he might, he might have. And it's, and it's interesting. It makes me think about what we do with religion, um, how, how dumb we get with religion. Um, and I think if we feel kind of clueless about how to be, you know, or we've been being ourselves and it's been problematic, you know, (laughs) then it's kind of like, all right, I got to stop. Maybe I'm not the best, (laughs) maybe I'm not the best decision maker in terms of my life. You know, and then you start wanting to outsource your decision making. You know? So uh, let me let me let me entrust all of this to a firm <laughs> that's tried and true, that understands how to how to how to do all of this for me. You know, it's kind of like uh, even the smallest company. A lot of the times, they outsource their payroll because payroll is just so damn complicated. You have three employees, and you have, like pay paychecks with an X. You know, to like sort it out, to do your correct FICA withholdings and all of this stuff so that you don't. And then they do all of your payroll accounting annually. Or, because there's, I, I tried to, when I had a Zen Center in New Orleans, I had myself as an employee. And I almost like ruined three people's lives <laughs> by like not filing things correctly at correct times of the year with the right information and stuff, you know. So... So I understand that that intention to want to outsource your decision making, um, especially if you've kind of lost faith in yourself, you know. And so we find a company that has um, a lot of clients, you know, and they must know what they're doing, you know. So a religion is a company with a lot of clients, um, and um, you really. Not, a lot of the time, not even advertising. They've just gone, you know, word of mouth. It's pretty grassroots, you know. <laughs> they started from just one one rickety old shack and one person with a, with a vision, you know. So that's a that's a beautiful, trustworthy model for a business. It's like, you know, 
You know, like you, sometimes you, nowadays you see businesses that are like since 1996, and you're like, yeah, congratulations. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like since 03, <laughs> big whoop. I think even Via 313 is like making the best Detroit style pie since, you know, 14 or whatever. Because <laughs> um, eventually that'll mean something, right? So to have, to have something that's like uh, ending delusion since 500 BC or something like that that's pretty good yeah however um, uh, I don't know if you know this one of the basic fundamental teachings is that everything changes you know, my fundamental teaching in Buddhism is that everything changes so to look at something 2500 years old and take a snapshot of that and worse take a snapshot of my interpretation of that and try to graft myself into that conceptual framework and live that life, it gets really problematic really quickly. There's a lot of things that we um, aren't taking into consideration when we're studying this stuff. If we even go so far as to study it, which a lot of us don't, you know, which I would really, really encourage. Um, I'm considered knowledgeable, I, by and large, I mean, I read, the, I read a lot of the books, but most of my important information comes from Wikipedia. So it's not hard to learn about Buddhism. It's, it's pretty accessible. And, I'm, and I don't have a ton of original thoughts. I'm just kind of like a DJ. I'm just kind of curating all of it for you. you know? um, so... The important thing to remember when we're looking at Buddhism is that Buddha's um, motivation, so the historical Buddha, do you know that there's a historical Buddha? There's like, Buddha's like a bloke, you know, like one chap from like, from like 2,500 years ago, uh, born in a town that, depending on who you ask, is either in uh, northern India or uh, Nepal. Nepal says it's in Nepal, and India <laughs> says it's in India but it's called Kapalavatu. And uh, he taught in an uh, uh, area that used to be called the like, Magadan Kingdom, uh, which kind of stretches from present-day Benares, uh, or I guess Benares isn't the current name, Varnasi, um, to uh, Bihar. Um, he was awakened in Bihar, in Sayyid Bihar. And... Uh, his um, motivation, when he was pretty young, I mean, he was in his 20s. I mean, maybe, maybe I don't know what life expectancies were, but uh, he was an adult, but not an old adult. And um, his main motivation was not to be good, as far as I can tell. That wasn't his primary motivation. It wasn't, he wasn't like, when you read, even when you read the really mythologized you know, like, uh, there's a, the first kind of drama was a Sanskrit poem by uh, a guy named Ashwagosha called the Buddha Karita. And it's this kind of Sanskrit epic play um, about Buddha's life. And even that, which is highly fictionalized, uh, or not fictionalized, mythologized, same thing, you know, um, is uh, when he talks about his motivation, it's not like, I need to figure out what's good. Or I need to figure out how to be a better person or something like that. It's, um, I need to figure out how to end this suffering. So it's a pretty local, pretty local and emotional. You know, pretty local and emotional motivation. So I think we can avail ourselves to um, relaxing into that might be our motivation. And we're not necessarily primarily here to become altruistic or something like that. I think that's an okay starting point. Um, and it makes the other stuff make sense. Especially, um, another important thing to remember is that uh, our, uh, in this country, our, there's, there's not a culture. There's not an American culture. You know, every single one of us has a, uh, a, um, very multifaceted ancestry living in our veins. Um, 
and this is, I think, um, creates a lot of um, emotional and conceptual predispositions that we're very, very unaware of. So trying to take something and transplant ourselves into it or it into ourselves without taking our um, implicit views uh, and our pl- implicit predispositions into consideration can be a little bit, uh, can lead to a lot of frustration in how we navigate this stuff. Does that make sense so far? Are you with me? When you look at the early teachings, and um, so there's two main bodies of early teachings. There's what they call the Pali Canon, which is the earliest teachings saved in the Pali uh, language, which is a, a Prakrit. So it's like a um, uh, from the same era uh, and region as like Sanskrit, but not of the priest class. So it's kind of like common. So Prakrits are kind of like so Sanskrit is like the perfect language. Prakrit's kind of like the imperfect languages from the same area. You know, you know. So Pali is one of those. And it was kind of a deliberate choice to, to record. Sanskrit was available, but to record the, the Buddhist teachings in, a, in the language that is not the language of the Vedic culture. The commoners, more of like a commoner's language. Yeah. Anyway. So you have these teachings from then, and then you have saved in, only in Chinese nowadays, uh, what they call the Agamas, which is another parallel collection of the oldest teachings. Anyway, when you look at these teachings, um, the language that's used is what we would now call in kind of modern theology, uh, uh, apophatic language, which means a language that describes the theology by way of what it's lacking. Is this too? Am I? Is this too complex? Is, <laughs> um, it'll make. I think I'll, it'll get ordinary in a second. So when you look at Buddha's description of the liberation that happens through practice, it's like, and you are not reborn into this world, or you have escaped life, or something like that. So what does that do to you when you hear that? You know and. Is is it regardless of regardless of your of your ancestry, even just in living in modernity right now, does that do something different to you than you think it may have been intended to do? You know, like uh, given the worldview twenty five hundred years ago in India, you know, there's this language like this is the Saha world, which means barely tolerable in Buddhism. <laughs> like this is the barely tolerable world. You know. And do you regard this world as barely tolerable? Do you want this to be your final rebirth? Do you want to escape life? And then there's even phrases like, um, um, there is pleasure because there is no longer any feeling. Could you imagine going to a therapist and saying that? (laughs) You know? So when we look at this language, and, and, and instead of looking at, I'm not suggesting to look at it and, and take it at face value and be like, well, that's dumb, and then just like doing your own thing. But looking at it and asking the text what it means. You know? And the best way to do this, one of the helpful ways to do this is what we call like a hermeneutical circle, which is where you look at the rest of the text to see if it can round itself out in its descriptions of itself. So when it says, you know, escaping the world, it's kind of like, what, does, what, what do they mean by world? Because again, we're working in translation as well. So when you start looking at, and you could do this when, if you have a digitized version of the text, you do control F or whatever, and then you type world, and it'll show you every time the word world shows up, and then you can see every time they use the word world and what they mean. And it comes out, escapes the world of the senses, or something like that, or the world of, of pursuing desire or something. And then you can start to get a more and more rounded out version. But that still doesn't completely solve the problem if you are, and, and there's, this, there's a possibility that what Buddha wanted isn't what you want. You know? He might have had a very different temperament. He might have been a five on the Enneagram, and you're a four on the Enneagram, or something like that. And you want life to be interesting. You don't want to escape the world. You know? 
And so does escaping, does what escaping suffering means to you different than what it may have meant to Buddha? And are you just going to divest yourself of your own innate wisdom in your bones from generations of inheritance and just opt for what Buddha says? And what is that going to do to your mind to just stratify yourself like that? You know, there's this whole way that it makes sense to me to be. And this religion says that I really shouldn't do that anymore. So I'm going to just not. I wonder if that would backfire. You know, I've had uh, anyone, a lot of people, some, some people have, seem to have more of a problem with it than others, and especially young men seem to have more of a problem with it than others, of really trying to glom onto an ideal <laughs> and be that. Because we've been really trained to uh, be very um, emotionally thick. Um, and I don't mean thick in terms of, like, multi-layered. <laughs> I mean thick in terms of, like, when you can't fold the newspaper anymore. You know, um, when there's... When, yeah, when I lived in San Francisco, there'd be these beautiful lighting fixtures in the Victorian houses, but they'd paint over it and paint over it and paint over it so you can't tell what the design ever was. That's, that's, that's the emotional life of an American male, I think, a lot of the time. You yeah. um, know... So, so we show up to these places and we want to do what's true and what's right, you know, and we're not checking in with our predisposition and our DNA and our value system, you know, uh, it, and, and it may very well be that looking at it like this can be the difference of whether it's liberative or oppressive to you to take on a certain philosophical framework or philosophical system. Yeah. So, this isn't something that we need to address or figure out for the first time. This has been happening to Buddhism all along. If you watch the history of it, if you look at the language that's used in different textual eras it definitely I don't want to when you when you say the word evolves it gives the impression that it was like unsophisticated to start with and then it got sophisticated but it, it adapts and the text doesn't adapt the text has no will to adapt itself you know so a lot of the times we say that a lot of times we'll say Buddhism has evolved as it has moved through different countries and times and stuff like that, as if Buddhism is this organism that has its own will. And because if we say it like that, then we get to opt out of the responsibility that's implicit in what actually happened, which is people adapted Buddhism to their needs. You know? And when we look at that in antiquity, it's easy to say, Buddhism evolved. You know? And, um, and uh, we want... Even if we're doing something like Zen, which is half as old as Buddhism, you know, uh, we, it's still old enough so that we can um, invest very thoroughly in it without really feeling like we have the ability to make it our own. Yeah. Is this a problem that anybody else has? Or is this, am I just talking to myself? Because I think maybe, you know, I'm like, you know how we all are struggling with, like, wanting to do Buddhism, right? And you guys are like, no, we're fine. <laughs> um, so I would say that if your approach to Dharma is limited to Dharma, it's going to be kind of bad Dharma, I think. It needs to be integral to meet all of these aspects of you, you know. And even that word integral, you know. And we're gonna do a workshop later today on the on the eightfold path. The eightfold path, you know. A lot of times they say, "Oh, the eightfold path is right this, right that, right view, right uh, insight, right." Uh, but that word "right" is uh, is the Pali word is sama, which means uh, holistic or integrated. Yeah. So how do you integrate these principles 
so that they actually um, touch something that makes your life come to life and feel more expansive than it does now, you know, and feel stabilized, you know. And in terms of ethics, the motivation for ethics in Buddhism was so that you didn't walk around feeling remorseful. That was, it's not so that there's this thing called good and you should be good because it's good. You know, it's so that your psychophysical system is not harboring regret, you know. And you could say, well, I just won't regret what I do. <laughs> Which, I was talking to my friend that used to be the, the director of the uh, Shambhala Center. And she said, yeah, that was kind of Trunka's thing in Shambhala, trying to like s- bypass regret. And I don't know if anyone knows that that organization has been rife with a lot of difficulties of unethical conduct, you know, because you actually kind of can't just bypass the regret because there's a whole way that your system works that is not, that is completely divorced from your conceptualization, not completely divorced from your conceptualization, but doesn't rely on your concept for its information. You know, so you can think you don't regret something, but it's actually living somewhere in your, in your energy system. So it's not just a matter of just not being hard on yourself. You, there's actually um, a way of um, existing in accord with how things are that creates a sense of well-being. You know? And part of that is understanding how things are. So part of understanding how things are is understanding your predisposition. And, and not viewing yourself as some kind of blank slate that can do it, that, that should be able to do what's prescribed by some tradition. You know? um, sometimes, like, you hear people say, it might be more of a monastery problem than a here problem. Um, but you hear people say, I know I should be able to practice anywhere, or something like that. But it's like, yeah, but can you? You know, like, like, you know, you're sitting here and it could be, you know, it might be noisy or whatever. And it's like, I wish I could practice somewhere quieter. That's totally valid. If that would be supportive for you, that's a valid thing to have. You shouldn't, yeah, you should, you should do your best in the environment that is exactly as it is. If it's too hot or if it's too cold or if it's noisy or if the door keeps opening or the floor squeaky or something like that. Do your best in the environment as it is. And if you like, want to like go do a retreat instead of like well I should be able to practice daily and I and it should every time you say should you know let let a red a red light go off like it's like what who am I who am I really and what do I really need and and start asking yourself that cuz there's really no authority but yourself you know and part of wisely using that authority of yourself is gathering the wisdom that you can from alive good good and wise advisors and the good and wise advisors may be in various traditions and they may be running through your veins. Yeah. Um, I want to know what people want to know about. And I'm going to stop monologuing. And if anyone has any thoughts or reflections or questions, you can ask them. When am I supposed to stop? Beautiful. Yeah. Does that feel like a good enough of a, of a primer for a way of for a way of starting to think about things? Do you have any? Does it bring up any questions or do you want clarifications? Or, yeah. Well, it, it, uh, I I find myself this is uh, helpful for me because I feel like I was sort of raised in a culture of seek a, 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 trying to attain perfection. Yeah. You know, the, this ideal. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're good, or you're, or you follow this, you know, the corporate path, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you will, you know, eventually achieve, you know, mm-hmm. um, some sort of uh, lack of guilt, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so, so there, you can see that the the uh, um, corridors or the the, uh, the uh, guiding uh, principles uh, that um, take you out of yourself, in a sense. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, mm-hmm. really good thoughtful stuff for me too mm-hmm. and how to get the most out of my yeah. yeah yeah it, you know I 
the, I, last summer, I gave a talk about devotion practice. Because it's something in Zen, and especially uh, thinking people don't like loving God. <laughs> or loving anything. <laughs> um, uh, so there's this whole devotional wing of, of Buddhist practice, which is actually, this is, another, uh, this is another thing I wanted to get into a little bit. How Buddhism, uh, how Buddhism fixes its own mistakes, it fixes its own mis- no, that's the thing. It doesn't fix its own mistakes over time. We fix its mistakes over time, you know? Um, but we have to be in, in conversation with it in order to do that accurately, or, or else we're just putting our trip on and just rewriting it and calling it Buddhism, you know? But if you look at, so that kind of language that I was talking about, about end of the world, when Buddhism gets to China, no more end of the world, no more final rebirth, you know? All of a sudden, instead of escaping the world, you're attaining the way. You know, attaining way was this pre-existing notion in early Chinese philosophy of Tao. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Tao, uh, or Do in Japanese, if you look at the uh, Tao Te Ching, it's described as the mother of all, you know, um, the, the uh, what is it called? The realm of the good and the refuge for the not good. Mm-hmm. You know, and... I don't know about my psyche, for whatever reason, when, I, when, when the Chinese explanation of this attaining the way, returning to the source, rather than escaping the world, then I'm like, okay, thank God. You know? Instead, because, because when you look at the early text, you're like, Buddha thought that, that human life was deeply flawed. You know? And I don't think that. So I'm not going to operate from that, you know... Um, What's the word? That that starting point. Yeah. Um, and let that all change and use the language that's useful to you, you know? And use the imagery that's useful for you. And, uh, yeah. It's interesting, too. Um, for example, sitting this morning, for me, uh, it's, it's catching myself, you know, uh, Almost like this, oh, almost like I found myself caught in the middle of some checklist of things I need yeah. to do, like, to be a better person. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I need to call this person I haven't talked to him since, you know, mm-hmm. December. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because just the act of practice sometimes draws mm-hmm. you to this sort of, you know, this habit yeah. that you have of yeah. checklisting or, mm-hmm. uh, or, or self-critiquing, yeah. you know. Yeah. And the idea when we're, when, we're, when we're on the cushion here is to let all of this be visible as mere mental phenomena. Mm-hmm. You know? So you're discovering, you're discovering how you, you get to finally see how you do. Our views are not visible to us as views. You know? You could, you, we, we do, think about what your views are. You, we don't even really know what our views are. You know, because it's like, it's like holding a photographic negative against a stone wall and looking at it through a loop. You can't tell what the picture's of. You need that, like, opaque white light box to tell what the picture is of it on the negative, you know? Uh, they call it, you know, we used to call it making a proof sheet. You put the negatives down on a strip of paper, and you had that white backdrop so that you could see. Imagine if you went to the movies, and the screen was like a rainbow, and they tried to project Star Wars onto this rainbow. You know, so to sit in front of a blank wall is to have a blank backdrop for your mind to just throw itself at so you can finally see it. You know, because otherwise we're being led around by God knows what. You know, um, and, uh, and it's just like this endless excavation of our, of, our, of our inclinations and predispositions and our views, you know. And I remember one time... Uh, there was a retreat in here, and you're not supposed to, if it's Kinhin time, so walking meditation time, if there's Kinhin time, and I could hear, I hear Mako's voice, because when you were Eno, Kinhin is not a rest period. When you used to read the admonitions, um, Kinhin is not a rest period. Do not make coffee or tea during Kinhin. Um, so, uh, <laughs> don't go out to the smoking pit and have a cigarette. Don't go to the pit. That's a need. That's, that's nature calling. Um, 
But so one time we were here, and it was back in the Kosho days, and we had leftover bagels, and I'm going bananas on these bagels during Kinhan. Because <laughs> um, I'm nervous that I will not be fed. You know, you ever get nervous that you're not going to be fed? Yeah. You ever order way too friggin' much because, of, because you're scared? <laughs> you know? Or you ever notice that when you go to buffets, you eat the same amount? You're, you're, you're full after the same amount as when you're not at a buffet, but then you just kind of get more because you can. I do that, you know? Um, but uh, um, I'm going bananas on these bagels. And then Kosha walks back through the kitchen and he just goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I go, if I don't, and then my mouth's all full. <laughs> and, and I'm like, if I don't eat them now, I won't be able to eat until too late or something like that. And he goes, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> or is that not true? <laughs> and when something arises in the mind, you know, a belief, you know, if I, you know, uh, I do this thing when you, when you, um, when you're kind of concerned, when it's early days in any kind of relational thing, you're maybe more aware of your, of your conduct and if it's okay or not, you know, the impression that you're making and you're thinking, oh, I said th- this thing or this thing, or if I'm hanging out with someone, I'm like, oh, watch this funny YouTube video. And I'm like, that wasn't as funny as I remember. You know? I'm like, this person thinks I'm an idiot. You know? And it's like, is that true? Or is that not true? You know, I need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be okay. And you might find out that it's true, but, it, but the whole point of practice is to give yourself the opportunity to see it and ask it. You know, that's the shamatha and the vipassana. That's the quiescence that makes your, that makes your workings visible. And then the inquiry, that's like, and what does it mean? And how do I work with it? And does it cause suffering or non-suffering? There's this great um, sutra in the Pali Canon, a sutta, um, called uh, uh, Ad- Ad- Advice to Rahula at Mango Stone. So Mango Stone is apparently, a, I think, a place. It's probably a rock that looks like a mango stone or something. you know. And, um, or maybe I just thought it was rock because there's the word stone in there. And I made that. I made that up. Might not be true. Anyway, Rahula was uh, Buddha's son, right? So we always, and that's another thing. When you start looking at this stuff, like people saying, "Oh, Jesus would never slap a hand away," and like actually, he was mean a lot of the time, you know. And you start to like engage with the text, and you're like, "Things aren't what you thought they were." You know, Buddha renounced his family, except they all came and ordained. He was he got to be with his son every day, you know. So if you start to think, "Oh, I need to be like Buddha. I need to be unattached to my family," you live with his son. You know, his, his, his aunt was a nun. His ex-wife was a nun, you know. Everybody was right there. He had his own little utopian community. His family just got bigger, if anything, you know. And so there's all these jerk people throughout history thinking they need to be like the ancestors and, and renounce X, Y, and Z when it's, you know, oh, I shouldn't handle money, whatever. If you've ever been to a Thai monastery where they don't handle money, they, they just have people for that. <laughs> they outsource it. You know, there's a, there's a whole class of people called Anagarikas that are, have eight precepts. All the precepts except the money ones. And actually, they'll delay your ordination if they don't have enough Anagarikas to handle the money. They're like, oh, I want to be a monk. are like, yeah, but if, if you ordain, then we have no one to go to Ace Hardware, you know? <laughs> so we got to wait until we get another one and before you can move up, you know? And you see him, because I, I live, there's a Thai monastery right near where I live, and you go to Starbucks, and the monk's sitting in the passenger seat, and the Anagarika goes in and buys all the lattes, you know? <laughs> so it's, is it, are they, are they true gritty beggars, or is it a priest caste, you know? So anyway, Rahula, Rahula was a Buddhist son, and, and apparently Rahula being like seven years old, uh, when people would show up, he would just like lie to them. <laughs> They're like, where's Buddha? And they're like, oh, he went away. He's really far away right now. Yeah, he'll be back in seven days. You should wait. <laughs> you know, like little like cheeky jokes like that. Um, and then Buddha had this chat with him. And, he's, and it's, this is a thing that recurs throughout the suttas. He said, actually, if you lie, you'll do anything. He said the lie is the, is the, the you know, gateway drug to all of the other 
transgre ethical transgressions. You know, if you lie, you'll do anything. And then he said, and then somehow he broke into this other kind of topic, and he said, whenever you do an activity with your body, or whenever you do an activity of, whenever you speak, or whenever you do, whenever you think, whenever you engage in deliberate, proactive thinking, you think, will, before you do it, while you're doing it and after you're doing it, you're asking yourself, is this going to cause harm to self or other? You know? And it's not so that you're good, it's so that you feel free. And so to not get narrow, it's like I can't relate to this escaping the world. I'm going to believe that there is a benevolent substratum to all existence, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to entrust myself to that. You know? And you can think, will this, because I have, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Will this cause pain for self or other? Uh, in the future or now, you know, as you and you and you and to and to bring to give yourself the tools to be the authority of your life because you already are, you know. Um, I have a lot of friends because our society kind of begs it of us that uh, have some pretty high anxiety and depression, and actually, emptiness teachings are really, really toxic if that's your mental state. You know, you need a little, you need a little bit of uh, um, divinity, you know, to give you that little, uh, to, you know, divinity wets a dry religion. You know, what is divinity apart from a really warm regard for the function of how things are, you know, and, and really holding, holding the function of things in, with kind of high respect and esteem. And trying to have a conversation with it that honors the way that it is that you can't manipulate, you know. So letting that divinity come in and, and wet a, a very dry religion. I think Buddha was actually pretty intellectual, um, and if you're not, you don't have to be. You know, you don't have to do it exactly in that way. Um, so, yeah. So um, I. Mm -hmm. and I've people um, before tell me I mean they've, they've come in and they you know might say that they have anxiety or other things like that and mm -hmm. you know I want to call them out or but mm -hmm. um, are there are there good ways in talking to people because I, I think that has been uh, an experience I know other teachers who worked with folks in mm -hmm. various conditions have said, you know, sometimes sitting practice isn't the best thing. Yeah. Depending on what you have, you need maybe a movement practice or mm -hmm. um, so how do we how do we work with that with yeah. others yeah. be supportive? Yeah. I think one thing that I would say one of the many things I'm going to say is uh to have a, a, a really consistent, because I mean, when I lived at Tassar, we would sit on a regular day, I think it's maybe about five, five hours, six hours, and then on a session day, it's like up to like nine hours. Um, and there was kind of like this little slot of time called like exercise, which meant sleep, you know, <laughs> um, for me. Yeah. Um, but I was in my 20s, so I can kind of get away with it. But I think to, um, not have a energy body practice, not even to not have that be part of your vocabulary, and to be a meditator is is insane. I don't is insane. I don't like using the word insane, but I mean you know it's stupid. I think it's stupid. Um, uh, uh, I think it's um, and a lot of these sitting practices have been coupled with energy body practices. You know? And uh, to do your own investigation about, and it doesn't, you know, it's so funny because I used to do that. I'm like, I wish there was a Buddhist yoga, and then I do yoga. Isn't that stupid? You know, like it needs to be, 
branded with my brand. You know, like everybody gets mad about like whatever, like iTunes for having being all proprietary about like the. I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about computers. But like, um, you can't you can't use like certain things and but like. Yeah, you can't like use proprietary software on a different platform or something like that, you know. But uh, yeah, you you really can. And the earliest Hatha Yoga text is from Tibetan. It's Buddhist. Um, it's all 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 the technologies are were all cross contaminated with each other. You know, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism, there's hardly a single thing in there that's left over from early Buddhism. It's all like Shaivism from Kashmir and stuff like that. It's like it's like a total mutt you know, of, of religious technology, and the technology is applied to the philosophical framework, you know? And the philosophical frameworks aren't hugely different, you know? There's just like, the difference between Advaita Vedanta and, and, and Mahayana Buddhism is just like this little kernel of selfness, you know, that depending on how you look at it, could be just find as very similar things. And I think in, in, with anxiety in sitting practice, I think how we couch it can be... Very important, um, especially you know, East Asian East Asian culture. One of the most, especially China, Korea, Japan. One of the most important ways that order is kept socially is this principle called li, and that is um, ritual propriety. You know, and so there's a way that you do everything. In fact, we just watched uh, Star Wars last night, and there was the trailer from the new live-action Mulan, and there's this scene where um, the guy was offering himself up for the battle because he didn't have a son, and he's standing in front of the person that he's talking to, like, this is Lee, and this is, and this is carried over. The way, the way of deference, the way that you do everything, you know, if you look at the Analects, there's these parts of the Analects where it's like, Confucius never sat down without straightening his mat. You know, and all of that cultural inheritance is very, very vividly alive in the Zen tradition. Sometimes, and I go to school with a lot of Chinese folks, and they say that um, Japan does China better than China does in terms of <laughs> in terms of um, in terms of that maintaining that really almost rigid sense of, of ritual propriety. And now, so this is another thing where when we're trying to graft another sensibility onto your temperament if it it can be done in such a way that I feel like a lot of people that spend some time at a place like this start to love Lee you know um, but if it's put on you in, 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 a, in a heavy handed way you know and it actually I gotta confess sometimes I kind of make a show of being a little bit bumbling to kind of diffuse the, no. the vibe. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to mitigate the oppression of Lee, you know, um, because I remember giving Zazen instruction at Tassahara, and you talk to people, you have, you know, people are there for vacation, you have 50 minutes to talk to them about Zazen, and 45 minutes of it is etiquette. And that was always a little heartbreaking for me, you know. So people leave this end up being like, gosh, I hope I remember all of that, <laughs> you know. So I think in instructing people that are new, reminding them that the primary practice is to actually relax the energy body to the greatest extent possible. And let, actually, if you, if you can hold no constriction physically, most of your delusion has gone right then. Because of, because of the psychophysical relationship of it all. You don't have to think yourself out of delusion, actually. You know? Are you, when you get a massage or something, if you're lucky enough to be a person not covered in body hair, where mas- <laughs> I think they're painful for me. But, um, but uh, if you get a massage, how much negative self-speech do you have during or after? Or, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of that delusion is just living in all of these knots. Throughout our throughout our uh, uh, wind body, the emotional body, you know. So there's the mental body, the the, the corporal, the, the the material body, and then what we call the emotional body. So in Tibet, it's called lung, 
in, uh, in India is called prana. In uh, China, it's qi. You know, and um, in, in the energy body is this conduit between the concepts that we have and our physical experience. You know, it's the messenger between the two. And if, when, it, when it moves in certain patterns, just like a kind of stone is carved out on a shoreline in a certain way by the movement of the water around it, your body, your body starts to manifest the way that your thinking has been done. So you can address that through changing your thinking, which is a little bit slower. And that's why in the yogas and in the tantras, there's so much attention on the physical body and in the energy body, because you're actually going a little bit straight to the core of it, because you're not, there's a little bit of a lag when you try to change your concepts. You know, it's a little bit more immediate to go straight into the tension that you hold in your, in your physicality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You oh. still have that fragmented mind. What? Will we still then have that tendency to have such a fragmented mind? If what? Well, I mean, I can, I can through yoga, yeah. Yeah, get there. Mm-hmm. But I guess my, my it's, it, in everyday... You're back in your mind. Yeah, it comes right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why that's why continuous practice is so important. Right. Because it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, there's a faucet on, and you're like bailing it, but the faucet's on. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Or like, you ever cut yourself shaving? Mm-hmm. I I did like uh, very recently, and you go, and got it. You know, got, and you keep going, and it keeps coming. You know, the blood. You know, so our delusion is kind of like blood from the razor cut. Because yeah. we do it to ourselves, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate what you're saying about things like be the authority. Mm-hmm. You know, like don't outsource your decision-making. And yet I want to invite a different perspective, or get your thought mm-hmm. like on a different slice of that, which is part of No, no, I'm right. At the time, there were various options available out there. And yeah. I thought, well, this one's been around for a while. This isn't just some, you know, completely arbitrary, random thing that's made up on the spot. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious about your take on, on, say, balancing this. I have to be my own authority, and I have to yeah, make decisions. Yeah. With maybe I'm wrong, and these uh, people are saying yeah. something that goes against. Because to me, it's more like a dance totally. between. I don't want to outsource because ultimately it is me. Yeah. I'm me is not the most reliable. Yeah. 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 And a big part of it's trial and error to not decide beforehand to actually engage the practices and see what and see what they're doing to you and give them the time. You know, even in the Buddha's biography, he studied with all of these different teachers, all these different traditions, and he didn't leave until he actually got it. You know, he never left really like too prematurely. Um, And then the thing about and this is going to, we're going to wrap up after this. Um, uh, the authority of the tradition. I, what, what I like about Zen in particular is that it's really strict. But it's really strict at insisting that you occupy the platform where you investigate. You know, like all of the strictures of Zen actually put you back into this spot and it's not very much a um you're not so much presented i I loved uh the thing in trying to because a lot of the times a lot of other types of buddhism seem to have a lot more information than we do and i like information so i want to go to them to get all of their information but the shadow side of getting all that information is like oh they have facts ugh you know, and I feel like in Zen, and the way that we do it, especially Suzuki Roshi's vibe, you know, and that lineage, we got no facts. We're not trying to get you to think anything in particular, you know. Um, but there is a whole rigidity about engaging the factless existence, you know, and it's a whole discipline to um, give up conclusive thinking. You know, and so and this is back to back to the the ritual propriety. There's a, um, a I forget the actual Chinese 
but it's not, but it's uh, subdue the self, return to the form. You know, and that's and that's you know, it's a shame that that Zen students kind of study a lot of Buddhism and don't study a lot of Confucianism because I feel like eighty percent of what we're doing is comes from Confucianism. But subduing the self and returning to the form, and um, and but on the on the front end, the the way you kind of onboard the form is to uh, give yourself that. When you create strong boundaries in the onboarding process of a religion, does that make sense? So that so that you can really engage it, but you're not. Um, but you've promised yourself that you're not going to be all hook, line, and sinker about everything. You know, so there's so there's that nuance there of of wholeheartedly doing something. That you are letting yourself not get swept swept up in in its totality, you know. Because then, if you if you become one of those people, that's like, well, I do what my teacher says. It it's a mess. Never just do whatever your teacher says, <laughs> you know. Um, your teacher might be really really good at some things and really really bad at other things. Uh, I don't know one that isn't really good at some things and really bad at other things. You know, notice what they're good at, notice what they're bad at. Notice what a form is good at, notice what a form is bad at. You know? Um, so we're just, yeah, it's hard though, because there's no glib solution to this kind of trial and error that we have to do with all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think questions like, is it true? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And noting your patterns because there's not just one of you. You know, there is a personality for every wound that you have, and an agenda for every wound that you have. You know, that's trying to procure safety and acceptance for its own self. You know, so when you start to say, so this is what I do. This is where this whole talk came from. This is the last thing I'm saying. <laughs> When I'm do, engaging a certain worldview or behavior or persona, I put on a persona, I'm fun, I go, I go do X, Y, and Z, right? And that starts to feel uncomfortable for me or there starts to have repercussions for me that I'm frustrated with. Then my solution is to completely eschew all of that and be like, I was wrong, that was dumb. Instead, I'm this kind of person. Instead. I'm this kind of... So something that was really, really important to me on Tuesday, I'm treating like the plague on Friday. You know? And religion gives you a big opportunity to do that. You, when, you, when you're in doubt with being yourself, you're like, well, I need to just stop wearing civilian clothes and just wear these karate pajamas and, and shave my head. And, um, and, and then I'll be... Yeah, I'll be pure. And what happens when you stratify all of these parts of your psyche and exile them and ignore them and just, and just try, you never, you know, like that samma is not right, it's integrated, it's holistic. And we're going to talk about the, integra the integrated eightfold path this afternoon from one to five. Um, and on that note, I think I, is that a good place to stop? I, I shouldn't ask you. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much.